Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Welcome back to another episode of Of The Devil's Party. My name is Alice. And my name is Rowan. And we are Of The Devil's Party. And we are back with more Paradise Lost. Of The Devil's Party. Are we Of The Devil's Party? I think we're Of The Devil's Party. Who's sinning? We're sinning. Everybody's sinning. Hey, where's my record label? Are you excited? Well, I need you to muster all the energy you have because it's going to be a good episode. We're going to have a lot of fun. <laughs> Last episode, we examined the context behind Paradise Lost. We considered Milton's life. We looked at the publication history of the poem. We considered critical reception of the poem up until the present day because we work hard for the money. And we examined the various uh, interpretations of Satan's heroism, uh, the argument that he it could be considered a classical hero, that he was representative of Milton's subconscious in some way, that perhaps, um, according to reader receptionist uh, Stanley Fish, Milton set us up to like the devil in order to de- develop a more didactic text to teach the reader to be suspicious of satanic ideas and suspicious. to learn from them. What did you learn last episode, Rowan? I learned so much. I learned like more about history and politics than I could have learned on purpose. Um, it's, just, it's just all in there. I didn't know that Milton wrote other stuff as like, that was like also, like, well, I didn't know that he chopped off king's heads, justified job chopping off king's heads. And I can understand understand why people like read sort of backwards like a revi- like a revisionist, revisionist. Uh, yeah i can understand why people do revisionist readings of satan because what milton did with chopping the heads off the kings was quite something See, i'm offended because i've talked about that in both lectures i've given on milton and you attended both of those lectures so i have the memory of a flea <laughs> you do we know this <laughs> that's the problem <laughs> <laughs> we learned so <laughs> but i've been having a lot of fun what what else did we learn i learned that he knew he knew more languages than i thought he did which means that I just hate him a little more. Holy God. Yeah, dislike him. And that he really liked the Italians, which I really should have guessed from the whole Dante thing. But I mean, I guess nobody's perfect. Did you learn anything else about the way Milton combined different existing heroic archetypes to create Satan? <laughs> Were you convinced by my argument that Milton combined existing heroic archetypes to develop Satan? I was convinced. Good. I'm a bit biased, though, because I like you. Um, okay. <laughs> No, I was convinced. I think I can't remember any of the heroic archetypes. So Prometheus, the idea of rebelling against God uh, for a benevolent purpose and bringing fire to humanity um, because they're being tyrannized and therefore somehow freeing them. So there are Promethean aspects, like his pride is quite, it um, recalls Promethean ideas, but Satan lacks Promethean benevolence, as we talked about. That's what Percy Shelley says or or recognizes probably most prominently. Um, There's the idea that he's the classical hero. So like Aeneas or Odysseus because of his posturing and battle um, and big long speeches and the way he commands his troops. Uh, but that is problematic because he himself becomes a tyrant under God. You've got the idea of him as um, a revolutionary leader in, in obviously the contextual sense like Cromwell. Um, one of the interesting things was how you were talking about uh, Milton undermining classical heroic types and the epic poem itself. And I thought that was really interesting because I'd never heard um, Paradise Lost described from that aspect and thinking of like the Aeneid and Odysseus and that sort of 
of thing. Yeah, because he's undermining what what we could call the testosterone fueled posturing of these men and revealing it for just sort of buffoonery. Because Satan tries to do the same thing, but under God, it's pointless. And as we talked about, like in battle, they the, the there's no point the angels going to battle because they just end up growing back the limbs that they lop off of each other. So it's completely pointless and entirely farcical. So you've read the first two books. I have. I've read. You understand them? I only understood them the latest time around because, as we mentioned, I think last episode, the first time I read it, I didn't understand what the heck was going on because I couldn't um, decipher the clauses. <laughs> but now I can. <laughs> just this really, really long sentences. They, they're beautiful, but they're very long. We're going to analyze some of them today. So um, the goal of today is to unpack the first two books of the poem, which are obviously some of the most sublime poetry Milton ever wrote. Uh, very impressive poetry. Often a lot of people only read the first two books and don't go on, and you should. But we're going to start with the first two and then it, uh, because Satan is prominent in them and then go on and look at the others. The interesting thing about Paradise Lost is chronologically it's all messed up because the poem actually starts like chronologically in the middle in book Does in that book usually six. happen in epic poetry? Sometimes, yeah. There's a lot of moving about chronologically, but it makes it more confusing because it, it suggests that Satan is the hero because it starts with him, as we'll talk about in Medius Rays, in the middle of things. It plunges into the middle of things. Um, and this is an epic convention that Milton uses, but normally uh, the convention is used to plunge into the middle of the things with the hero. And you might think that the hero is Satan in this circumstance because the convention set him up as such. But then as the poem progresses, you realize that, oh, wait, it's Satan. He can't be an epic hero. And Milton yeah. starts to undermine all of that. But yeah, it can be confusing because yeah, it all works in retrospect. It's probably even worse for people now. Like if you think like a uni student only reading the first two books, mm. they're very much ensnared by Satan and his heroism, which I was and I still am. <laughs> Willingly of the devil's party. We, well, yeah, consciously of the devil's party. Consciously. <laughs> I decided to be here. The drinks yeah, are nice. Free will. A bit hot. Um, do you remember what happens in books one and two? I think so. Book one, we open on a burning lake. Satan and his legions have all, like, been smoked and thrown down into this big hole we now Smoked. call hell. Smoked. <laughs> yeah. um, and he's, like, lying in, you know, I don't know, burning lava or something. Sulfur. And he's yeah. just, like... That that hurt. Um, and then he like points to one of his friends and he's like, get up. We've got shit to do. And then he points to a whole bunch of other angels. They're like, get up. We've got shit to do. And then Satan like... He might give him a speech that he gets. He does a lot of speeches. He might give him a speech then, like a little one, and then he makes them all. He gets them all to like gather their sticks and their shields, and then they all fly off onto this like mountainside or something. And then they have this big debate with scare quotes, and they decide to destroy man. Um, mm-hmm. Man meaning humans, because they found that that's a new thing, and that God's got a new pet, and they're not mm-hmm. very happy. And like I think a cat that realizes you've adopted a puppy precisely and it's like i'm going to push the puppy into the pool <laughs> little shit can swim kitten um and so nobody nobody audio grab that for nefarious purposes please and so what happens then is this is still in book one satan uh decides that he's going to go off and do this so he oh, can't no, you're in book two now we're oh i mean book two speeches. yeah yeah we're in book two okay so we've had the speeches book two satan is off 
to destroy mankind. He does this. He's a big journey. It's hot. It's dismal. It's, it's horrific. He's like goes into the abyss. He meets like his daughter uh, Sin, Sin and death, her yeah. son Death. His son <laughs> her death. daughter. There's a lot of it's. Um, and then he like and this part I forgot about and I really really like it how he goes into um, chaos or is it yeah night? so so the whole journey is through chaos up to up to Eden and then he sees and he meets like in the, the kingdom of the king of night night yeah that was really cool yeah and then he pops his head out of the ground like a gopher and oh and and then we're <laughs> off to book three <laughs> we're off to book three I think the only bit you missed was um, they build they build pandemonium which yes. is the city of city of old demons they do that together so we'll look at that today in a bit of detail we, obviously we're going to focus on Satan but I want to talk about sort of poetic conventions Milton's poetry itself the way he uses for example similes um, invocation of the muse and some other aspects that I think are useful for people who might be studying the poem but we're not going to go all ham because otherwise we will be here for a month with just me repeating everything Peter has ever told me also <laughs> some of you might be vegans and we want to respect that what? you said we're not going all ham I'm also vegetarian yeah I know <laughs> Are we going to be covering the Loch Ness Monster? Yes, we're looking at the Loch Ness Monster today, you monster. All right, so let's jump in. I thought a good place to start might be to look at the epigraph by John Dryden, um, which he wrote for the fourth edition, which was published in 1668. And I think it's really beautiful. He says, three poets in three distant ages born, Greece, Italy, and England did adorn. The first in loftiness of thought surpassed, the next in majesty in both the last. The force of nature could no further go to make a third. She joined the former two. Are you going to make me guess who's who? Please don't guess. Please just tell me you know. I only know like one poem, one poet. Uh, it's, it's, well, you've got Milton going back to Dante, I hope. And then the first one was from Greece. So I'm guess. look, I know Plato was from Greece. Homer? Yep, Homer. Yay. Dante? Mm-hmm. Milton? Mm-hmm. The, the, the triad, the three boys. The three boys. I've actually seen someone say that Italy was Virgil because he was Roman. So who is it then? Because um, <laughs> Dryden literally translated Virgil into English. He was the guy who did it. Ah, he was uh, a fanboy. Yeah, he was a big fanboy. So I think it goes to show how much people recognised Milton's genius in his own day, that J- John Dryden, who was the poet laureate of the time, wrote this epigraph for Paradise Lost and that it was put in there, I think is also fun. Any thoughts? On the epigraph? Mm. I like it. I think it's very neat. I think he knows how to use rhyming schemes. Well done, Dryden. <laughs> All right. So, do you understand the first hundred lines of the poem? I'm glad that you started uh, this discussion with do you understand? Because honestly, might not have two weeks ago. Uh, I think I understand. I assume that I've understood it. Uh, But who knows? Maybe you'll say something next and we will prove me wrong. All right. (laughs) So, we're going to look at the opening. Um, And the opening goes like this. Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree, whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe, with loss of Eden, to one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat. Sing heavenly muse that on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai didst inspire that shepherd who first taught the chosen seed. In the beginning how the heavens and the earth rose out of chaos or if Sion Hill delight thee more and Siloah's brook that flowed fast by the oracle of God, I thence invoke thy aid to my adventurous song that with no middle flight intends to soar above Baeonian mount while it pursues things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. Questions? Impressive. So this is the voice of the narrator? So this is the 
Trader's voice, and they are doing, they are playing with uh, Epic Convention here and invoking the muse, right? Mm. And the muse here is probably Urania, muse of astronomy, popular among Christian poets, often used as kind of a weird creation muse. Um, but also, uh, Milton is invoking the Holy Spirit and kind of combining the two together to inspire him. So um, he's kind of like, I have the power of God and poetry on my side. Exactly what he is doing. And I think, yeah. and, and the thing to pay attention to here is he says, while it pursues things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. And the only reason things are unatt- what he's doing is unattempted yet in a lot of ways is because he's saying that chronologically it comes before everything else. Like it comes before Homer and Virgil and everyone because this is the fall. This is the very start of humanity. So he's like, I'm first. Um, <laughs> even though what he's talking about is after and a lot of the conventions yeah. he's using are after. So, he, But also it's got this other meaning of things unattempted because no one else has tried to explain in prose or rhyme, I guess, in this much detail, perhaps with some exceptions, um, man's fall or humanity's fall. So, so that's yeah. actually, oh, um, <laughs> that, that actually clears some things up because as you know, like the, this is before the fall of man, which chronologically, um, and this, um, the narrator invokes like a whole bunch of stuff that comes after the fall of man. Mm-hmm. It's very messy. How does that, is oh, this setting it up? Difficult. And also like Milton using conventions that weren't, that didn't exist yet and yet and using illusions that didn't exist yet. Part of it is it's poetry and it's just part of the game. It's interesting how he starts it off of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all that folk. Look at the use of enjambment on the end of the first line of man's first disobedience, comma, and the fruit. And you think that's going to be it, but it keeps going like of that forbidden tree mm. um, whose mortal taste brought death into the world. Like it's not just the fruit of man's disobedience. It's the fruit of the forbidden tree, which is everything that comes after man's disobedience. And he's sort of setting up uh, how these consequences just keep going and going and going from the very first line, which, ah, which is cool. I yeah, see. it's cool. So because you're waiting for like the, you're waiting for like the drop, like the punchline of the first line, but yeah, then it just kind of rolls onto dropped. the next line. Exactly. Yeah. You think it's dropped, but it keeps going through that use of enjambment. And Milton does this a lot. See the forthcoming essay by Dr. Peter Gross for more. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, just, just one so on the side. What is enjambment for people like oh. me who don't know what it is? What? Just guess. You did an entire literature degree. Yeah, but I didn't do poetry. I avoided it on purpose because I couldn't decipher the clauses. <laughs> I don't think we could be friends anymore. Okay. So, <laughs> so that a lot. <laughs> it's all um, because I don't know poetry. <laughs> That's classes. No, it's not. We're about the same class. <laughs> hey, I'm much higher class than you. <laughs> oh, come on. Look <laughs> at my hair. All right. So, um, in German, people said we have the feedback I've had so far is that we have a good dynamic. So, I hope they're enjoying this. Um, it's about as platonically gay as you can get, friends. All right, let's go. Come on. Enjambment, Moron. All right, enjambment is when there is no punctuation on the end of the line and it pushes you through to the next line. And it can have um, a lot of different um, purposes. Like you can trap someone with enjambment, you can shock someone with enjambment, you can push an idea even further, you can sort of set up um, like multiple trap doors. <laughs> it's a very useful poetic device that I think students often refer to but don't actually analyze the way it's working in, in, in a meaningful way all the time yeah. um, when it is so meaningful and so interesting to examine in poetry. So yeah, students, if you're listening and you're talking about enjambment, do it right. He kicks off right, as we say, in the middle of things. So of man's first disobedience, they're meeting the fruit, the fruit of that forbidden tree, the fruit that it is, mortal taste 
taste. Isn't that fun? Mortal taste. The taste of mortality. But, ooh, cannibalism. No, no. Of the, uh, ah, of the, bitter, the, the bitter taste of having to die eventually. Got yeah, it. and Milton often uses taste and smell and sound as a way of sort of setting up our senses for things Well, he didn't come. have any other senses when he was dictating this titty. Oh, oh. Brought death into the world, so this is how humanity, we ate, <laughs> we ate of the we ate fruit. We ate of the fruit. And all our woe with loss of Eden, so we lost Eden. And with Eden, we lost right reason. We lost this sort of strange connection to God that we had. The ability um, to walk around naked without feeling bad. That also, to one greater man, who's that? Jesus. Jesus. Yes! The answer was Restora Jesus. and regain the blissful seat, which hasn't happened yet. But Milton is. Oh no! Just Google it. It'll be every like I think there's one in nine years. It was meant years. to be last week. Last week I missed it. I didn't have it on my calendar. Ah, that's right. Hedonist night. That's what the problem was. I was out <laughs> sinning. I missed the. Anyway. So he says, "Thing heavenly muse," and this is interesting on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai. So Sinai is obviously where Moses was given the tablets, and he came down. He was like, "Here is the law of God," and everyone went, "Where?" You said that you said the word obviously. That wasn't obvious to me. I thought he just did that on a random hill. You didn't go to a Catholic school. All right. <laughs> that shepherd Moses that first taught the chosen seed in the beginning, how the heavens and the earth rose out of chaos. Or, and then he talks, and you'll notice he uses or a lot. He's like, or this, or this, or this. It's his favorite conjunction. And this allows him to kind of keep building multiple meanings. Milton is very, he's polysemous, uh, <laughs> which makes him slippery uh, because which one is it? But the point is here he's invoking all of these um, inspirational forces to inspire him to be able to tell this incredibly difficult story. You'll notice that he crams the entirety of Christian hi- history into one sentence by using allusions or you'll notice that he's substituting epithets for proper nouns um, and this is a technique called antonomasia. Good job pronouncing that. It sounds like it would be difficult to pronounce on the first Almost time. like it took us a minute and then we had to take <laughs> that again. He's referring to Pauline theology which is the idea of Christ as the second Adam um, represented through the repetition of the use of the word man. So um, you'll notice that of man's first disobedience to one greater man. That's what he's doing there. Tricky, right? It's fun. The more you dig with this, the harder it gets. And yeah, he's claiming precedence over history, but relies on history to do so, <laughs> which is one of my favorite things to point out about him. He talks about uh, intending to fly with no middle flight. So the soar above the Aeonian Mount. The Aeonian Mount is Halicon, which is sacred to the muses. So the idea is he's going higher than pagan antiquity because he's using Christianity rather than paganism. <laughs> he's more inspired than those dirty pagans. <laughs> the no middle flight thing, uh, he's compared to Satan who struggles to gain a middle flight that he soars even higher than Satan does. That's the idea. Any questions? Is he invoking Icarus at all? Not yet. Not yet. I think Icarus comes up a little bit later when he's talking oh, about Satan. Very yeah. nice. A <laughs> favourite waxy voice on the move. And he continues and he says, instruct me for thou knowest thou from the first was present and with mighty wings outspread dove-like satst brooding on the vast abyss and madest it pregnant. What in me is dark illumine, what is low raise and support that to the height of this great argument I may assert the eternal providence and justify the ways of God to men. Say first for heavens hide nothing from thy view nor the deep tract of hell. Say first what cause moved our grandparents in that happy state, favoured of heaven so highly to fall off from their creator and transgress his will will for one restraint, lords of the world besides. Who first seduced them to that foul revolt? The infernal serpent. He it was whose guile stirred up with envy and revenge, deceived the mother of mankind. What time his pride had cast him out from heaven with all his host of rebel angels, by whose pride aspiring to set himself in glory above 
his peers. He trusted to have equaled the Most High if he opposed, and with ambitious aim against the throne and monarchy of God, raised impious war in heaven and battle proud with vain attempt. So we're only like, we're not even a hundred lines in, and he's already told us everything that's going to happen in the poem. <laughs> he packs the entirety of Christian history into a single sentence, and then he packs the rest of the poem into maybe two. And, and even like, no, into a few, because there's some questions. I do like how he's allocating space here. It's like, hmm, which one's more important, my poem or the entirety of Christian history? Yeah. Two sentences <laughs> for my poem. <laughs> the man had an ego. <laughs> so, uh, and the point here is we all know the story, like we're familiar with the story, but his, you're okay, you're not? Do you need me to explain it? <laughs> no, I've read okay. the poem. <laughs> Go read Genesis, everyone. So, he's trying to justify the ways of God to men, right? So, the idea is that all of this happened, but people are constantly debating why and how and for what purpose. Why did God do this to us? Why did we have to fall? Why did Adam fall? Why did Eve get tricked by the serpent? Why was the serpent there in the first place? All of these questions that are raised if you read Genesis. How did the he, serpent move before it was prone? <laughs> caused a fistfight we'll or two? We'll get there. <laughs> okay. oh, that did Pogo cause stick. A There's yeah. a meme about that. Yeah. <laughs> we should we'll add a link it. to it that analyzes the meme. How did Satan, we can have a little fight over if you want. Like we can, you know, act it is, out. I remember you sent me that meme and I took it into my supervisor when we were studying this and I said, look at this meme. <laughs> and he joined in on the meme because the, the yeah. meme starts with Dr. So-and-so flipped a table because other doctors said X yeah. about Satan and he disagreed. And then he went ahead and basically flipped, flipped the table verbally. He was like, no, yeah. it's this. <laughs> yeah, he's like, he's like, Satan isn't a fucking pogo stick. <laughs> How do you know you weren't there? <laughs> He might be. He might have been. <laughs> Academics. Heathens. Pagans. Since the beginning of time. Okay. Um, so we're trying to justify all these questions, explain all of these questions. And like I said, not not just explain, but justify. Why did God do it? To give us a better understanding. And the point is we come away, you know, as confused as when we joined the poem. And and, mm. the, and that's because, like, God is still inscrutable. God is unfathomable. God is, God is ephemeral. You so can't then what was the point of God. the poem? To try and understand our place on earth a little bit more. Like, you'd learn a lot along the way but one of the things you learn is just have faith in God because otherwise you're, you're, <laughs> your life's gonna suck and we'll look at this a little bit when we look at how the angels respond to being kicked out of heaven um, you'll notice again the repetition of say first say first say first so again he is claiming precedence over everything else using that repetition which I think is fun and the question and answers for one restraint lawns of the world besides who first seduced him to that foul revolt like these are the questions he's gonna set us off to answer what cause what cause moved our grandparents in that happy state because they were so highly favoured of heaven. Why did they fall? Why did they fall when they only had one restraint? Who caused them to fall? And then he answers it all. He says the infernal serpent, he it was, whose guides, guile, stirred up with envy and revenge. Like, it's all there. We know the answer, but connecting like why the serpent was there and why he is envious, why he was stirred up with revenge, why he deceived, why he deceived the mother of mankind, why he was proud, why that got him out of heaven. Like the point is he sets all this up because we know it, but we don't know why and he's going to answer it later for us. The other thing that's important here is he says that Satan trusted to have equaled the most high. So he trusted himself instead of God. So this is, again, him explaining pride as being the beginning of all evil because Satan's pride meant that he um, believed himself to be separate from God. And he was ambitious. And then that allows him to attack the throne and monarchy of God um, and raise impious war and handle heaven and battle proud with vain attempts. So it's all there for us, but we need to then understand why. The Holy Spirit thing is cool as well uh, because it says it was from the first present and sets to brooding. The idea I love is, that line. Right? I do. Um, it's kind of this strange
strange hermaphroditic force brooding on the vast abyss and makes it pregnant. Mm. And then that is what illumines in Milton this inspirational poetry. And again, remember he's blind, so what is in me dark illumined, but this is also the idea that after the fall we see through a glass, uh, we see through the glasses darkly. The glass is dark, you can't see through it clearly after the fall. I think that's St. Paul. Futurellus back here. It is St. Paul in his letter to the Corinthians uh, 1312, specifically the King James Version. And back to it. Because we lost our right reason, we've lost our divine knowledge, it's all gone. <laughs> so he's saying, oh, Holy Force, come, uh, Holy Spirit, come in and inspire my mm. fallen soul. Does um, that also mean he's kind of like saying that what he's about to say is going to be like as pious as possible? He's saying that he's a prophet. <laughs> <laughs> Is a prophet, and he sees poetry as prophetic work. But yeah, I think Milton may have questioned what he was doing. As I said, he, when he went blind, he thought God was punishing him for something. So I've often wondered if him putting so much effort into this poem was somehow trying to get back in God's good graces by directing his poetic efforts to this pious endeavor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's pious, but as we'll see, he complicates God, he complicates Satan. So is it? And and I guess what's your goal here? You know, what's Milton's goal here? That's why everyone's always debating Milton's purpose and Milton's intent because if it's just to explain it well it's already been explained but to justify it that's a big job does he succeed doesn't he but the reason we're here is to talk about satan and dark heroes so what we really want to look at is the introduction of satan um us our boy where our is boy. our boy here he be he's the like big one the proud parents and he comes out first center stage we're like hey. <laughs> he's got goat hoofs <laughs> horns no, importantly he doesn't ah um, again shelly says the milton divests these accoutrements of the devil the horns the fluffy legs Makes that. him sexy. That's the problem. He was like, yeah, this guy, Satan, he's like super beautiful, but he's like scarred by, you know, revenge and whatever. He's ma- he's maybe the biggest man you've ever seen. He's also like real charming, like so charming that he could convince you to sin for the first time in history. <laughs> and he thinks that no one's going to like him. Bah! <laughs> So what do we get from Satan in this opening bit? We are told that he's the infernal serpent. So Milton associates him with the serpent of Genesis, which again is interesting because when we get to Cain, Cain's, um, Cain, the Eve in Cain insists that the serpent isn't Satan, that they're separate. So people argue about this. It tells us all of his main character traits, guile, envy, revenge, deception, ambition, Im- impiety, delusion. And he's he, he attempts vainly, like it's all purposeless. <laughs> and then his, his goal is, is very clear to us, aspiring to set himself in glory above his peers trusted to have equaled the most high. Like, it's all there. We know he's the bad guy. Milton doesn't cover that up for us all. But then he does this. How are you at reading poetry? Um, I think I would like, I think I'm okay. I've, I, I read it that I read it out loud to understand it. Okay. Do you want to have a go at the next? Him, the almighty power hurled headlong flaming from the ethereal sky with hideous ruin and combustion down to bottomless perdition, there to dwell in adamantine chains and penal fire. Who durst defy the omnipotent to arms? Nine times the space that measured day and night to mortal men he with his horrid crew lay vanquished rolling in the fiery gulf confounded though immortal but his doom reserved him to more wrath but now the thought of both of lost happiness and lasting pain torments him round he throws his baleful eyes that witnessed huge affliction and dismay mixed with obdurate pride and steadfast hate at once as far as angels can he views the dismal situation waste and wild a dungeon horrible on all sides round as one great furnace flame 
Yet from those flames no light, but rather darkness visible, served only to discover sights of woe, regions of sorrow, doleful shades, where peace and rest can never dwell, hope never comes that comes to all, but torture without end still urges, and a fiery deluge fed with ever-burning sulfur unconsumed. Such place eternal justice had prepared for those rebellious. Here their prison ordained in utter darkness, and their portion set as far removed from God and the light of heaven as possible. Good poetry. It's good poetry. How do you not read that and go, yeah, hell sounds great. I think it's, I want to see it. (laughs) I want to see it. Is there an elevator? Yeah. Is there an elevator? I think there's just a long drop. Door, like on a Shakespearean stage. No, so what do you notice in that passage? There is, there's a lot of words to start with, a lot of really pretty words. Well, he's using a lot of fire, fiery golf. So what what you've recognised is a sublime imagery. Yeah, that's the word. Yeah, there's lots of sublime. sublime imagery as well. And he also, um, he, he kind of focuses in on Satan's face and his expression, mm-hmm. like through, he throws around his baleful, baleful eyes. And that's the first image of Satan in the poem, his baleful mm-hmm. eyes, which he's throwing around. And it tells us that witnessed huge affliction and dismay, but mixed with ob- obdurate pride and steadfast hate. And I think that is the central paradox of the satanic hero. They are suffering, tortured, proud assholes. <laughs> like me. <laughs> no, you're not a satanic hero. <laughs> <laughs> You're a Byronic at best, my friend. <laughs> and yeah, and he's tormented by the idea of lost happiness and lasting pain. So tormented, suffering, proud, dickbag, these ideas are put together the first time we see Satan. And I think they're difficult to reconcile. And this is what humanizes him and makes him seem sympathetic to us because, oh, mm. he's tormented. But he's an asshole. <laughs> oh, what do we do? <laughs> is, is, that our, is that our problem? Because we want to sympathize with this guy, but he's also, like you said, a dickbag. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it's a bit more complicated than that, but centrally, I think that's what it is. Um, and the more we sort of learn about Satan and why he rebelled, the more we sympathize with him. And then that becomes difficult to reconcile with the reality that, well, God is God and God is right. So what happens to Satan is right. And then Satan does bad things. So we get a more complex view of him that makes him easy to understand and, e- and, and much more difficult to just recognize him as the villain, like unambiguously bad guy, not complicated whatsoever. So yeah, like Sauron, we all go, bad guy, not fun. Don't bring him to the party. Yeah. Joker, complicated, complicated. might bring him to the party. <laughs> bring him to the party. <laughs> or even Batman, for that matter. Like, he's a morally ambiguous character. He's got a lot of money. He does have a lot of money. I'm inviting him over to the party only if he agrees to hey, do the catering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it says, um, the, almighty, the almighty power hurled him headlong flaming from the ethereal sky. So God put him there, and this is his punishment to bottom perdition to dwell in adamantine chains and penal fire. And then we get a really famous line, who durst defy the omnipotent to arms. Omnipotent meaning all-powerful. Who dares to defy the all-powerful? Satan does. Satan did it. And this he is his it. punishment. That's why we're also, here. Also, it's like, it's such a beautiful line that, yeah, who would defy the omnipotent to arms? Good job him, whoever decides to do that. <laughs> it's like a union call. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> Tells us that nine, nine days they've been, they fell and then nine days they were lying there. They lay vanquished confounded though immortal so they're like in this um, in death out of death like strange coma they've been to a big party but and then it says his doom reserved him to more wrath so he's like I'm more angry now I'm coming back for you <laughs> um, he, he brings himself back to the land of the living through sheer rage alone <laughs> every morning <laughs> 
the line about at once as far as angels can he views right so angels can angels knowledge and angels knowledge was meant to be pretty you know pretty good <laughs> even compared to god very good better like than humanity can, oh, like they so can multiply fractions that. yeah i can't do that so he still retains that knowledge and he views the dismal situation mm. waste and wild that's the you know a dungeon horrible on all sides round as one great furnace that's the sublime imagery that a lot of um poets including burke focus on and then in particular no light but rather darkness visible can you get more sublime i don't think you can mm. get more sublime than that no. and again milton being blind and we get one of the other incredibly famous lines um from the poem where peace and rest can never dwell hope never comes that comes to all but torture without end thoughts on that I, f- I get the feeling that it's been paraphrased a lot since milton wrote it down first this is true and it wasn't just milton um this is also dante do you remember uh yeah there's like it's like on a on an archway it's something <laughs> like it on an archway but he doesn't it's different what does he say there <laughs> leave leave hope don't don't want it leave it at the door leave abandon hope at the all door. hope yeah, yeah those who enter here um yeah. and Milton's saying the same thing about his god uh, his his hell rather i i always get caught up on the lion in such a place eternal justice had prepared and i've asked a few times uh whether or not god foresaw that, that they would need this and put it there and so that did god set everything into motion i get very tangled up in the idea of will and who does what in this poem and i just keep coming back to god's the bad guy and peter keeps slapping me on the wrist and going no <laughs> <laughs> He did it. He did it after they fell, <laughs> and while they were falling, he built this prison because it's God, and he can do whatever he wants. Ah, um, that makes yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. True. And then obviously, in utter darkness, their portion set as far removed from God and light, so they can't get any less godly. Down Especially here. yeah, and you said that like he still has angelic knowledge. That means he's not like usually when I think of Satan, I think of someone who's kind of like hell inside as well as outside. At this point, he's not like that. He's not like that yet. He's only yeah. just been kicked out of heaven. They still they still retain some of those ideas. You know, I think the fact that they're they're removed from heaven, they've fallen, so they've lost all of their you know heavenly connections. <laughs> um, that slowly manifests both yeah physically, mentally, psychologically. Uh, you see that in Satan as you get to some of his later speeches, and it's tricky because it's not ambiguous that Satan is the bad guy because he's literally they're telling us about the prison where they put him because he was a douchebag. <laughs> but it is ambiguous whether or not Satan is the bad guy because we get this really complex psychological representation of his response to it. And so Satan begins, he turns to Beelzebub, his bestie, and he, uh, one next in power, sorry, one next himself in power and next in crime, and he gives his first speech. And you have to pay attention to Beelzebub because Beelzebub is very similar to Satan, and I think Beelzebub is biding his time, waiting to take power back. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, Satan begins his speech, if thou beest he, but oh, how fallen, how changed. And it's interesting you brought up what you just did because this is him recognizing that Beelzebub has changed somehow because he's fallen. And he gives this, this long speech there are some important bits to it. He says in particular, until then he knew the force of those dire arms, right? It's God. Everyone knew the force of his dire arms, you moron. Yeah. Of course, we yeah. knew it. <laughs> um, he probably so started seen... out by saying, hey, do you want to fight an om- omnipotent force this afternoon? <laughs> yes, let's try it. Do you think we'll win? No, uh, likely not. We'll, we'll look at how he manipulates them because, again, there's a debate here about whether or not the angels go with him willingly, and I think it's a mix. Mm-hmm. And probably that they don't, or at least Milton says 
up that they don't. And But then it comes back to, you know, if you're just following orders, you, you know, that you still don't have, if, if they followed Satan, even if he manipulated them, it's because they didn't have faith in God in the first place, which is fun. And it talks about, he, he, he continues his speech and he says, innumerable force of spirits armed that durst dislike his reign and me preferring his utmost power with adverse power opposed in dubious battle on the plains of heaven and shook his throne. What though the fields be lost? All is not lost. The inconquerable will and study of revenge, immortal hate and courage never to submit or yield. And what else is not to be overcome? The glory never shall his wrath or might extort from me to bow and sue for grace with suppliant knee and deify his power who from the, from the terror of this arm so late doubted his empire. But that were low indeed. That were an ignominy and shame beneath. What's he saying here? Looks like he's saying, well, the first thing he says, he's like, okay, we had like lots of an army. He's like, you know, we had a good big army. Everybody else didn't like God and they liked me because he's like, and me, me preferring. preferring. I'm like, okay, sure, Han. Very few here, Trump. Oh, I mean, yeah, but I don't want to associate yeah. Trump because I like Satan. <laughs> well, Satan was ruined for me watching some of Trump's speeches because it's Ooh. here. Uh, ah, I'm better. Everyone likes me more. Yeah. Nasty. Yeah. Um, it's the same you- kind of rhetoric that is just mm. grossly delusional. <laughs> You know, there's a few things that show that he's delusional here. Me preferring the idea that they shook the throne of God. They didn't even get close. When we look at the battle, like they just were squished. (laughs) Then he says, oh, the field isn't lost. All is not lost. We have inconquerable will. We have a study of revenge. We have immortal hate. And again, another famous line, courage never to submit or yield. This is the Promethean aspect, right? Mm. Because Prometheus is chained to the rock and the usual comes every day and eats his liver and he stays there and he withstands the torture and hooray. It's the same idea that's being invoked here. And then and he says, oh, what else is not to be overcome if we do that? But obviously Prometheus is doing it for good and Satan is doing it for evil and selfish intent. It kind of um, sounds almost like he's like lost the balance, trying to come up with a different way to feel like he won. <laughs> well, yes, he's trying to justify that they're, even though they're in hell, they should go back. And then he starts, he says, I'm never going to bow for grace. I'm never going to bend my suppliant knee or de- like, I'm not going to pray to this douchebag who has treated us like this. We have to go back and we have to avenge ourselves. Uh, and this is pride and we should talk a little bit about pride as an idea because pride is the beginning of all sins um, chronologically because Satan's pride kicks off the fall through Satan and then you and then Milton represents it in Eve she has a a healthy pride which Satan then appeals to makes it unhealthy she falls so pride is yeah pride's the beginning of everything right where does it come from Thomas Aquinas is probably the best one to look at for this Milton knew him very well do you know Thomas Aquinas Uh, not personally very dead (laughs) yeah but 400 years or so. <laughs> More than that. <laughs> oh. More than that. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Thomas Aquinas was a theologian, a philosopher. He was a big Bible dude, right? Google it. But he writes Summa Theologica, which is huge. I was like, oh, I should get a copy of this. And it comes in like 15, but I'm like, ah, shit. Just get the most important volume. <laughs> I got the ebook. I'm not here to mess around. Anyway, yep. he, he publishes this in 1485. Oh, wow. Um, this becomes a very fundamental. It has an interesting way of developing his discussion where he does it as um, he poses questions, he develops the rebuttal, and then he develops the answers. So it's this weird pseudo conversation that he has with himself where he reasons through ideas, which is actually quite common in that time and quite useful because you see them working through it and you follow it along a lot more easy than someone just telling you something 
something didactically. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an effective form of communication um, or education. So he says that pride overpasses reason, right? So you abandon reason, which is, it means that you aim higher than you are. Again, bad because you shouldn't, he says. And he says that pride becomes opposed to all virtues and represents immoderate desire of one's own excellence. Now to us, modern day figures were like, what, what's wrong with that? I'd like immoderate desire. I, like I'd like to have moderately recognized my own I'd excellence. like to have a little bit of confidence. <laughs> I want some confidence, please. Um, it does just come off as confidence, but he rep- he suggests this is sin because God gave you a place. Your job is to recognize that place, to fulfill that place. And if you go against what God desires, then you're acting out of pride and that's bad. Um, that makes and- sense because you're acting out of the plan and the- you're saying that you're more important than the plan, which is prideful. Yeah, and it's pride as opposed to humility. You're meant to be humble in the face of God, but you're suggesting, no, I know better than God. And that's mm. the worst thing you can do. And everywhere where people do this, they die. Icarus, Mysterious, <laughs> Satan, Samson and Delilah. Like, uh, just off the top of my head, a few of them. Cain. It just goes on and on. There's Bible stories forever of this. And the point is you're meant to have faith. And if you don't have faith, you're acting out of pride. And from pride comes all the other sins. And if you think you're better than God, then you're going to be avaricious. You're going to be a glutton. You're going to be lustful because you think it's okay to do that. Do you see? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then Dante will take you and, you know, put you under a lake or under a rock or something. Dante himself, his ghost. <laughs> yeah, he'll yeah. come back and stick your head into a tar pit. It sounds like, on the from a very atheist point of view, it sounds like, do what I tell you or you die. But <laughs> I suppose, like, the, the element of pride is, is the point. Yeah, it was a big deal for them. And you can see all of this represented in Satan. He thinks he, he aims higher than what he is. He affects, as in affects, as in takes on likeness, like he, as an effect, affectation of God. He affects the qualities of God. He attempts to look like God. He thinks he has an immoderate desire of his own excellence. Like he does all of them. It's basically by the book Aquinas, Aquinas by numbers um, that Milton is filling in here. So essentially Satan, through his pride, views God as a tyrannical figure because God raised the son to his right-hand man and and, and left everyone else. (laughs) And he argues later on, and we will look at this when we get to that book, but his arguments are essentially, why would you make a group that didn't need to be governed governable? Mm. And they're actually very logical arguments. (laughs) And the only sort of response is just like, but he's God, he can do what he wants. He's God, Ah. he can do what he wants. And I think this is, you know, Milton trying to justify the ways of God to man, like keep dragging us back to it's God, it's God, it's God. Um, We just have to have faith and we can't be like Satan. You can't reason your way out of something always. So then Beelzebub responds. Do you want to read Beelzebub? Yeah, sure. Let's um, give it a shot. Let's see if I know where the clauses are this time. Under thy conduct and in dreadful deeds, fearless endangered heaven's perpetual king and put to proof his high supremacy, whether upheld by strength or chance or fate. Too well I see and rue the dire event that with sad overthrow and foul defeat hath lost us heaven. And all this mighty host in terrible, in, in horrible destruction laid thus low as far as gods and heavenly essences can perish. For the mind and spirit remains invincible and vigor soon returns, though all our glory extent and happy state here swallowed up in endless misery. But what if he, our conqueror, whom I know of force, believe almighty, since no less than such could have overpowered such force as ours. What? That last bit is blowing my mind, I believe, since no less such... If you knew that no less force than God would smite you and throw you down to hell, why did you do it? And no other force could do it. It's that, yeah, self-refuting satanic rhetoric. It's ridiculous and delusional. Beelzebub has it. And you were yes. mentioning before that they Beelzebub are like... Beelzebub has it. <laughs> and, and he says, under thy conduct. So under your conduct, Satan, this is what So you, you, you told me to you do this. You did this. this. <laughs> you did 
this? <laughs> you and I? <laughs> you take your dog's head and you hold it to their poop on the carpet. You did this, okay. <laughs> and in dreadful deeds, fearless, endangered heaven. Again, that's delusional. No endangered. one was endangered. They like, weren't. He wasn't endangered. They didn't the get proof up to is the high dais. supremacy. That didn't happen. And then he says, whether upheld by strength or chance or fate. Shouldn't an angel know a bit more about fate? <laughs> well, no, the point is they're fallen, they're faithless, so that means they're proud and delusional. So they're ah, saying that, oh, gotcha. maybe he was, maybe the reason he won was because of his strength or it was because of chance or because of fate. No, it was God, you idiot. And then he says, I rue the dire event. So he regrets it. And he says, oh, we've lost heaven and our mighty host is now down here. We're sad. A bit sad, but he's like also exercising that self-reflective delusion. Yes. In the and he says, one. even though we're down here, the mind and spirit remains invincible and vigor soon returns. So we're going to get back up, boy. Though all our glory extinct and in this misery, we're going to go again, which satanic rhetoric <laughs> proud and it's impressive it's sublime mm-hmm. but it's also incredibly delusional and as we talked about um, last week Stanley Fish would argue that this is a trap set for us by Milton we're meant to fall into it because we go oh pretty words <laughs> I fell into it I'm like I'm giving him a shock of coal black hair some fiery <laughs> eyes maybe like Smoking some a cigar <laughs> <laughs> no no he lights it he house. lights the cigar on the lake of fire and then takes a big drag and then says something about the stock market that I don't understand. And then I think you're not the man for me. Next. <laughs> Next. I think in this situation, you are you are Dante and I am Virgil and I'm guiding you through this poem and being like, no, don't touch that. Okay, I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't lick the nice looking devil man. <laughs> and this idea, by the way, is reiterated later on by the narrator, right? And I am writing a, an endless article about the unreliable narrator in Milton. And, I, and I'm sort of refuting fish, which is obviously a tall order and I won't be done before I'm 50. But no, Milton isn't trying to trap us. Milton is trying to provoke us into reflection. And I know that 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 line is very thin, but I think it is an important line. The narrator says that they're chained on a burning lake, nor ever thence had risen or heaved his head, but that the will and high permission of all ruling heaven left him at large to his own dark design. Does he know this? Sorry? Sorry, no, you go ahead. So he's saying that the only reason Satan was actually able to get back up off the floor of hell uh, and lift his head, had risen or heaved his head, was with the will and high permission of God, who leaves him to his own dark designs, whatever they be. But again, that implies that God somehow says evil is okay. Ah, I see what you mean. And yeah. he's permit, like if he'd had him stay, not to work in ifs and buts, but if he'd had Satan stay there, the fall would of man wouldn't have happened because he'd just be down there in punishment. Yeah, or you know, if so he just smote him or smited yeah, him. Just... I don't know. What's the... so, but there are other clues, and this is the Loch Ness monster simile, as you like to call it. There are other clues that Milton gives us to show us that Satan is of what he seems, yeah. which we are meant to recognise. So we see all this wonderful rhetoric, his uh, strange sympathetic uh, psychological uh, psychological complexity, but there are many clues. So Milton has this great simile, and it's called an epic simile, which means it's quite long <laughs> because they belong in epics. Except Milton, the Miltonic epic simile is different because it's got stuff hidden in it and you're meant to figure it out. And they're meant to look diversions or sort of just unnecessary to the plot, but actually they're quite fundamental to what's going on because they teach you something uh, about what you're looking at. Uh, and this is really probably one of the most discussed passages in the poem, and here it is. 
So Satan talking to his nearest mate with head uplift above the wave and eyes that sparkling blazed. His other parts besides prone on the flood extended long and large lay floating many a rune in bulk as huge as whom the fable's name of monstrous size. Titanium or earthborn that warred on Jove. Briareos or Typhon whom the den by ancient Tarsus held. Or that sea beast the Firethon which God of all his works created hugest that swam the ocean stream. Him happily slumbering on the Norway foam the pilot of some night the pilot of some small night founded skiff theming some island oft as seamen tell with fixed anchor on in his skyly rind moors by his side under the lee while night invests the sea and wished morning delays so like literally it's talking about satan's size yeah and it compares him to the titans who are held in in um tartarus he's referring to the titans who are held in tartarus because they warred with jove so they were the original rebels um in greek history and sort of therefore in human history and this is told in uh, by hesiod in the story in the theogony which is cool and the point is that they have serpent aspects to them as well and if you know about that you you recognize that these are serpent-like creatures and later on the poem Milton says that he's talking to the fit reader though few and what he means by that is the fit reader is someone who knows all of the illusions that he's pointing out and is able to recognize the clues along the way but you can only do that through work right so he's like the fit reader is not just someone who knows stuff the fit reader is someone who subjects himself to education constantly so the fit reader will recognize the illusions to Briareus or Typhon or go off and check them realize that they have satanic, uh, sorry, uh, serpent-like qualities and go, oh, these are, yeah, um, precedents to Satan, right? Snake. It's He's so big, he's like the Titans, who are huge, but it's not just that they were big, it's also that they had these serpent rebellious qualities. And they're now also held in Tartarus as he is held, right? And then he goes, or, another or, um, and you notice the use of ors here, This that sea beast, Leviathan. Now, there's not really a Leviathan precedent he's referring to maybe in the Book of Job, but it's just like a big whale. <laughs> I've heard about one of those. Wasn't there this guy that tried to like spear one and he, you know, got swallowed? That's right. Pen- uh, he's referring to... He's I thought not. you meant Jonah. Anyway, doesn't matter. No. <laughs> big whale. Okay, he's so a big there's whale. So a big whale. And he says, God makes, made it huge and it swims the ocean stream. It's happily slumbing, slumbering. It's an innocent thing. It's not doing anything mm. except a pilot of some night founded skiff. So someone who is lost at night, uh, a sailor, thinks it's an island because it's so big, as seamen, oft- as seamen often do. And he puts his anchor in its scaly rind. But in the morning when he's asleep, the big whale is like, no more of this and he goes down into the ocean, has no idea that the pilot is there, and he takes the pilot down with him and he dies. <laughs> so, this is, wow. This is meant to be just, it's big. Satan is big, like a big whale <laughs> or a big type. Satan is a bit like a whale in that he's huge. <laughs> yeah, but do Thanks, you see Milton. what else is going on here? I do. Well, the last bit, it really kind of, he, he adds a lot to do it with the Leviathan. He There's a couple, there's like, what, seven or eight lines just describing the Leviathan in a certain way when he could have just said that He's like a big whale big in that whale. he's big. Yeah. So why? What do you well, think? Well, from what I know about this passage, which is only knowledge I've post- poached off you, he's demonstrating the way even the poem in a bit, but like satanic rhetoric can kind of trick the reader into feeling safe, believing it, and then, you know, the idea, and then obviously Satan will drag you down. Yeah, because the thing is when you're being told, don't listen to the devil, don't listen to him when he does these things, Eve and Adam are like, cool, gotcha, no worries. 
it's, then, always, yeah. it's good in theory. It's fine in theory. Everything is easy in theory, but putting it yeah. into practice is difficult. And here we see it in practice and we recognize why it is difficult because he's like, like us, the pilot is in the dark and he thinks that this is a safe place to moor himself. And so he does, but then he's dragged down into the sea by Satan and fairly innocent idea. Like who, who's at fault here? Is it the yeah. pilot? Is it the whale? The, the Leviathan doesn't know that there's a whale connected to him. So Milton is drawing our attention that we need to be, we need to be vigilant, constant yeah. vigilance, constant as Matt vigilant. I Moody would say, is <laughs> how part, we yeah. read the poem, right? Is part of that um, to do with that, that part of the passage in particular, that it looks like it's a nice passage. I think the Leviathan mm-hmm. seems like it's not at fault. It just happens to live under the sea. But yep. in fact, it's a trap. Yeah, exactly. It looks unnecessary. It, it looks like a like a diversion. But yeah, it's a trap. Or I don't think actually it's a trap. It's I think it's provocative. We're meant to go, why does he spend seven lines on a Leviathan? What mm. the freak is going Because I think, if, you know, when you're assembling Ikea f- f- furniture with your partner. I like or- how we got here. <laughs> and and you can't find something or, or Lego with your father and your partner starts to blame Ikea. Uh, we don't have the thing. We, blah, blah, blah. It's not working. Ikea gave us a faulty product. I always come back to like, I- Ikea didn't do anything wrong. You're just an idiot and we need to figure out what happened. And <laughs> I say this to myself. <laughs> I say this to myself and I say this to whoever I'm assembling the furniture with. It's the same thing here. Milton doesn't do anything wrong. Milton isn't a bad poet. Milton doesn't make mistakes. <laughs> or if he does, they're certainly, they're not in Paradise Lost and we're not smart enough to recognize them. <laughs> He spends seven lines on the Leviathan for a reason, and it's our job to figure out why we're meant to look for the Allen key. So this is wow. That's that's yeah. pretty good. So Paradise Lost is essentially IKEA furniture. It has so you have to only for visual yourself. instructions, <laughs> and you're not given an Allen key most yeah. of the time. You see it all beautiful in the showroom, and then you've got to take it home in a box, and you're like, ah. <laughs> you open one of the drawers, and there's a whole ass snake in there. I'm like, are you gonna make me sin? Yes. <laughs> anyway, if anyone's seen the Disney version of Sinbad, where they like moor onto a giant fish looking for oh, like, I love that water, film. and like and Spike the dog's licking the eyeball, yeah, it's gross. Um, it's it's the same kind of idea. People would it, it was a sort of a superstition or a, a thing that existed in favor of the side of something, and then getting uh, getting dragged along by it. And this we're not going to be able to look at every epic simile in the poem. We're about to look at the Galileo one, but another one that you could look at is the Burger and the Wolf one. Future Alice here, specifically book four, lines 183 to 193 because it's meant to draw your attention to... So in, in the simile, he says, oh, Satan slips into Eden as if a, a rich burger had left his window unlocked or as if a shepherd had left his his um, sheep alone for the wolf. And the point is, he doesn't just slip in because he saw an opportunity. He slipped in because someone wasn't being vigilant. Mm. Someone wasn't paying attention and that's what allows him to do it. So, uh, and we're the someones. Satan slips in when we aren't paying attention. Gotcha. So he's not suggesting that, like, God was not being vigilant. Or, well, like, this the is the bit that never makes sense in Paradise Lost. Um, he has this huge big walls on Eden which Satan overleaps in one bound and it's like okay it was for aesthetic purposes <laughs> I don't get it I, I, I really struggle to reconcile this stuff and I'm constantly banging my head on Peter's desk asking him to explain it again <laughs> like but why does God and he's like I don't have the answers Alex <laughs> that's why, the question Peter, you, know everything. <laughs> you don't have faith Padawan <laughs> the problem. I don't so we go from there we go from that epic uh, beautiful epic simile when we go back to Satan so it's kind of in between we get mm. the we get the Satan's beautiful big speech, Beelzebub's response, another speech by Satan, and then it's the idea that he was only able to lift his head with the with the authority of God. Then the epic simile, and then we go back to this wonderful speech where he says, "Farewell, happy fields where joy forever dwells. Hail horrors, hail 
which is in a Nick Cave song. Um, Infernal world and thou profoundest hell, receive thy new possessor, one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. The mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell, hell of heaven. What matter where if I be still the same and what I should be all but less than he whom thunder hath made greater. Here at least we shall be free. The Almighty hath not built here for his envy, will not drive us hence. Here we may reign secure, and in my choice to reign is worth ambition, though in hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. (laughs) How many people do you think have that stuff tattooed on them? Particularly, you know, the last line. (laughs) Yeah, a lot, quite a lot. So this is the most famous passage probably when it comes to Satan. Um, And the biggest insight into his psychology, the idea that you psychologically can control where... Satan's just like like in the lake and he's like happy place I'm going to a happy place <laughs> this <laughs> yes, is my happy place now <laughs> <laughs> it's the idea that you can use psychology to control where you are and essentially delude yourself because you know you can't make a heaven of hell no it's it's hell it's, it's an uh, interesting it's rhetorical real. device because he mm. uses chiasmus can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven so it just inverts the idea and it, it presents it to us as if it's an easy thing to do well it theoretically he makes it sound pretty it makes it sound pretty but right. it can't be. As they've just talked about for a couple of hundred lines, hell is a pretty horrid place. It's on fire, it's dark. But I want to believe him because he sounds so convincing. Then you are of the devil's party without knowing it. <laughs> no, I signed um, up for this. <laughs> so the idea that, yeah, one who brings a, na- a mind not to be changed by t- place or time. I argue that this becomes a central quality for the satanic era. The idea that their will is so strong, is so titanic, it cannot be changed or influenced by anything to the point that they are just completely delusional and fall and become ruined. But that is an impressive thing for us, uh, even though it ends in their torment. Well, <laughs> ends in we all like watching a messy bitch sometimes. <laughs> and he then argues that it doesn't matter where they are as long as they're the same and they have, you know, free will to do whatever they want, obviously missing the point that they don't have free will because they're in hell. And he says, you know, that God didn't build it. God, God wouldn't be envious of them for reigning in it, which again, delusional. And so he argues that they can reign secure. But if, you, if you're if you an ant and you're put in an ant farm mm. and you're like, ha we shall reign here. You're just missing the point that someone yeah. put you there yeah. <laughs> to reign. <laughs> no, that makes that makes sense actually, because ants will like ants will make their little houses wherever you put them. So God essentially was just like, let's take all of this negative energy, Lucy, and put it somewhere else because I'm busy. I'm putting this fire over here with the rest of the fire. Yeah, <laughs> to that's, quote what he did. that's what he did. And then the, so the fire is like, great, we'll make it our own. And he says, terrain is worth ambition though in hell. Like great. Raining is great, even though we're in hell, it's fine. And then the famous line, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. But again, central to the satanic hero, won't subject their will to anyone else. We'd rather reign, even if it's shitty, than to serve anyone, even if it's good. And um, we see this in Manfred, we see this in Cain, like it comes back over and over again. Make sense? Makes sense. Um, when he says, less than he whom thunder hath made greater, is that like, you know, when Thor got spoilers no. alert? He says, and what that. should I be all but less than he? Is like, should I be less than God? The the only reason God's better is because he has thunder. Like, he has right. the strength. Again, this is his pride and his delusion. He doesn't yeah. recognize that God is God. <laughs> 
Thunder didn't make him greater. God is just God. So he made the thunder. <laughs> yeah, let it go, Satan. <laughs> <laughs> let it go. So you can see, like, we're again only a few hundred lines in, and Melton is complicating this very traditional figure who's just meant to come along, tempt some people, and bugger off again. He's psychologically complex. He's got recognizable motivations. We can sort of see the logic in his arguments. His rhetoric is very persuasive. So he's got all of those kind of Machiavellian aspects, the aspects of the uh, the classical hero, and combined with the satanic ideas, it becomes very difficult for us to keep keep essential in our brains that, oh, this is this is the devil, this is the bad guy. Mm. Yeah. I wanted to look a little bit at the Galileo simile because I think, again, like the Leviathan simile, it's helpful for navigating the poem. I have um, not looked at this one before, so I'm excited. Lady has joined us. All right. Uh, <laughs> he said he scarce had ceased when the superior fiend was moving toward the shore. And this is a simile about his shield and his spear, but I kind of took the spear bit, the spear bit out. Ponderous shield, ethereal temper, massy, large and round, behind him cast the broad circumference hung on his shoulders like the moon, his orb through optic glass the Tuscan artist views at evening from the top of Thessaly or in Valdano to descry new lands, rivers or mountains in her spotty globe. There's a lot of layers to this. We're just going to deal with the more basic ones to sort of work on understanding of the poem. But the big one here is he's saying that his shield is so big, it's like the moon on his shoulder, okay? And it sort of looks really impressive. That's really cool. This comes, I think Achilles' shield is quite big as well, so he's uh, he's using precedent, he's referring to precedent here. But then, notice the like. <laughs> Hang on his shoulders, like the moon, whose orb, right? So, like the moon, like it's really big, like the moon, but whose orb through optic glass the Tuscan artist views. So, Tuscan meaning Galileo. So, like the moon which Galileo looks at through his telescope, which he developed. He didn't invent, he developed. <laughs> and, and he's looking at the moon, and he's recognising that although the moon looks big and beautiful and bright from far away, when you get close up, it's got all these imperfections, these dips, these valleys, these dark corners that we we can't recognize from far away. So what Milton is doing here is that he's saying that we, like Galileo, need to look through our optic tube, whatever that might be, (laughs) and scry Satan and just to scrutinize Satan and everything he says and look for the dips and valleys underneath the beautiful faraway exterior that we are sort of enamored by. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. I can see how Fish would have seen that as sort of like telling you how to do things, but it makes more sense to be a sort of provocation. Yeah, and uh, again, uh, I don't think Milton was, was didactic in that way. Like, again, if you read Of Education, his his whole idea is that you learn through doing and you learn through reflection and you learn through study. You don't learn from someone just sitting on the other side of the room going, no, you did it wrong, try again. It seems like all of these little departures from the main story are, like, moments to reflect. It yeah. feels it feels very, like, says, I don't understand poetry. I, can, I, I don't know how to describe it. But it has the same vibe as the skiff and the leviathan yeah well you know (laughs) it looks like a digression it's actually very central to what you're doing he's saying oh shield is this big takes us on this large digression you're like yeah 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 milton but actually if you're a fit reader if you're paying attention if you're staying vigilant and you're reflecting and you're studying and you're learning then you'll recognize that this is him this is a teachable moment (laughs) i've learned something (laughs) so satan he puts on his shield he grabs his big spear and off he goes across the marshes and he gets up in front of all the angels who are lying down like, ah, we're so, ho- so hungover from that big night out. And he gives... <laughs> Fighting God. <laughs> <laughs> he gives this great speech and he's like, get the heck up. <laughs> is that it? That's all it is. But we don't have time to look at every rhetorical device he uses. <laughs> so I want to skip over that one. But I think their response is quite interesting. He says, they heard and were abashed and up they sprung upon the wing as when m- men went, as when men want to watch on duty, sleeping found by whom they dread 
cows and bestir themselves ill well they awake. So he's saying they get up as if they've been found asleep on on watch, on guard. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, oh crap, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, boss, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, and I think that suggests a certain level of fear and the fact that they were abashed suggests they don't follow him of their own free will because he's a good leader. They follow him out of fear. Yeah, so I think, yeah, that's... This is the first, I think, clear instance that he is becoming a tyrant in, in his own right. What? I agree. You agree? <laughs> yeah, well, I, when I first read that line, I thought they were like ashamed of the fact that they were, they'd been wallowing, but this makes more, like it could be both. It makes more sense that they spring up out of fear because he is, it's like, he's their boss. He's the one that put them on watch. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> um, but then um, we get a long, long, long catalogue of angels. My mm. God. At the ah, convention, yes. big lists. You need big lists, shopping lists. This is what you've got to bring on your boat, on your voyage. But here it's catalogue of angels. And I think Milton um, is very smart because, you know, um, you're going to read a catalogue of devils, a catalogue of fallen angels. You're not going to read a shopping list for a, for a sea voyage. And and so they're all there. And then Satan comes out and he says, the dread commander, dread commander. He above the rest in shape and gesture, proudly eminent, stood like a tower. His form had not yet lost all her original brightness, nor appeared less than archangel ruined and the excess of glory obscured as when the sun new risen looks through the horizontal misty air, shorn of his beams and from behind the moon in dim eclipse, disastrous twilight sheds on half the nations and with fear of change perplexes monarch. Darkened so, yet shone above them all the archangel, but his face deep scars of thunder had entrenched and care sat on his folded cheek, but under brown of dauntless courage and considerate pride waiting revenge cruel his eye but cast signs of remorse and passion to behold the fellows of his crime the fall was rather far other once beheld in bliss condemned forever now to have their lot in pain this is a very interesting political portrait of satan so as i said dread commander he above the rest proudly eminent stood like a tower this is referring to the tower of babylon which is erected out of pride and it says his form had not yet all lost all her original brightness so again we still got that that um that angelicness is part of him and he doesn't look anything less than an archangel ruined or glory obscured. He still looks like a glorious figure. And it's interesting that it's all about like how he looks and what his perception uh, and what our perception of him is because if you go down, the idea of fear of change perplexes monarchs is Milton's little little jab at the monarchy. We don't have time. <laughs> go look at a footnote <laughs> for that one. <laughs> it says his face deep scars of thunder had entrenched and care sat on his folded cheek. You'll notice everything uh, every all of, all of the ways he's portraying meaning here on his faded cheek, under brows, considerate, right, uh, cruel his eyes but cast signs of remorse and passion he's being a politician because he's pretending to act a certain way he's pretending yeah. to have care on his cheek um he's pretending to be courageous and it says his eye is cruel but actually it's casting signs of remorse and passion to his followers so he's a manipulative leader here it's very like the language he's using means that it looks like all of his expressions are sort of the surface level so his face has deep scars of thunder but care sits on his cheek it's yeah. not in his expression and then he like his eyes is are cruel, but they cast signs. So he's, yeah. He's an actor. He's <laughs> yeah. acting. He's, this, this is some of his most interesting rhetoric because again, the fallen, this is him saying, all right, let's go, let's go start again. How such united force of God, how such a stood like these could ever know repulse? How could we, how good we are, ever know repulsion? <laughs> we haven't been repulsed. We're not in hell. Of course we only are. just, you know, fought the omnipotent <laughs> And then God. laid for nine days and nine nights so then yeah. up here. Who can yet believe, though after loss, that all the puissant legions whose exile hath empty, empty 
emptied heaven shall fail to reascend self-raise and repossess their native seat a lot for me be witness all the host of heaven if counsels different or danger shunned by me have lost our hopes but he who reigns monarch in heaven till then is one secure sat on his throne upheld by old repute consent or custom and his regal state put forth at, at full but still his strength concealed which tempted our attempt and wrought our fall henceforth his might we know and know our own so as not either to provoke or dread new war provoke a better part remains to work in close design by fraud or guile what force affected not that he no less at length from us may find who overcomes by force hath overcome but half his foe but so much wrong with all that <laughs> he's, he's, he's insane like, yeah, <laughs> he is and and when you read it out loud you can see how insane and how powerful the rhetoric is though right um he's mm. like we can't fail to reascend we're self-raised and we can repossess our natives that idea of if, if we are motivated enough we can do whatever we want well that's coming from the guy who said that his exile emptied heaven when it was a third of heaven thrown out of the place i don't believe him <laughs> i want I. to <laughs> <laughs> yeah you want to believe him but you've got to remember that this is satan speaking <laughs> and then also he says that the monarch in heaven he's secure something his throne he's upheld by old repute consent or custom so he's saying he's only there because of custom <laughs> and because people consented to have him there but he's just won the war yeah the yeah. um and the other thing is he says that his strength was concealed and that because of that he tempted them to rebel against him so many levels of wrong there <laughs> uh, it's appropriate. it's also an interesting idea that satan thinks it's god's coaxing him into doing something because it shows a hint of what is it pre preordained <laughs> does yeah, it he says he's suggesting that the only reason they're now in hell is because god wanted them to be in hell mm. so that also means that he can shift the blame from himself i didn't put us here god did so yeah because I god didn't tempted do us to rebel yeah yeah exactly so you made me say that <laughs> look what you made me do look what you made me do <laughs> he's down Taylor there from Swift hell <laughs> of hell <laughs> they have music there it's, it, it might as well be pop well they say that music does anyway <laughs> <laughs> that's another segment so yeah I, I, his rhetoric uh, he blames god suggests they didn't do anything wrong and he at the end of that speech is like right let's go build let's go build hell guys so they they turn hell into a beautiful pandemonium pandemonium yep um, and i think it's worth looking at a quick description of pandemonium um built like a temple where pilasters round were set and doric pillars overlaid with golden architrave nor did there want cornice or frieze with bossy sculptures graven the roof was fretted gold not babylon nor great Cairo. such magnificence equaled in all their glories to enshrine belus and seraphus their gods or seat their kings when egypt from assyria strove in wealth and luxury the point is it's a travesty of heaven it's meant to look like heaven but it's not and it says now that they've built this they in close recess and secret conclave sat now do you know what conclave is um is it like an, a little hole in the wall no, where bugs conclave. go <laughs> um, so conclave is what they do when they elect a new pope what they have conclave yeah when they elect a new pope they've all got to go into this room and they block the doors and they and I then they understand the religious people you didn't read dan brown growing, growing up to rebel against catholic. catholic high school um, i didn't <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just learning how to read. God. Bad teenager. Um, anyway, so, yeah, Conclave, uh, and then, like, depending on whether they come to a decision or not, 
not. They burn stuff, and the smoke that comes out tells they everyone waiting in the stuff. Stir. Yeah, so okay, they'll burn so they like go white in there smoke. and they start smoking cigars. Yeah. Well, I don't. Nobody knows what it's the what. It's like this really secret. I'm sure door. we could anyway, catch one. The point is <laughs> that they the then go in and they have this devilish conclave. So yeah. it's in travesty of the election of the Pope. Um, and also it's a it's suggesting that Satan is kind of like the Pope because Milton is a good Protestant. He doesn't believe in popery. He doesn't believe in those aspects of Catholicism. Mm. He suggests that it's adultery and you're acting like God on earth without the authority. So he's associating that with Satan on a double, yeah, double meaning. So a thousand demigods on golden seats, frequent and full after short silence then and summons read the great consult began. So we see in that book, Satan establishes himself as an alternative kind of tyrant to God. We see Satan in the sublime. We see him developing his rhetoric and his speeches and Milton using these epic similes to try and guide us and help us understand. With energy now, lads. It's time to look at book two. Are you ready? Hey! Hey! So, so in the interim between recording book one and book two, I walked the dog and I listened to Nick Cave's murder ba- ballads, which are amazing. And there's like so many references to Paradise Lost in them. I was well, if since you asked, I spent <laughs> the last not. 24 hours studying colour theory and it's made me basically colourblind. If we continue Satan's journey, Satan is still the central character. We don't have God or anything yet. It's it's all the devils. Do you have any book thoughts on book two of Paradise Lost? I'm excited to get into it and and the bits about chaos and night and that sort of thing. I think that's like also included less of that. Oh, well, I guess we'll just have to do another episode or something. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it. All right. So book two opens with Satan on his throne, high on a throne of royal state, which far outshone the wealth of Ormus and of Ind. Do you know what Ormus and Ind is referring to? Are those, did they have like a cartoon show in the 90s or something? I have no No. idea. um, Ormus, modern Ormuz or something, captured by the Persians in 1622. Uh, so essentially the East and Ind, India. Oh, wow. So Eastern areas, the East. Why do you think the East might be significant here? Um, associations of the East with devils because foreigners are bad. Yeah, barbarism. Um, also the idea that there were Eastern tyrants as rulers. Or where the gorgeous East with richest hand showers on her king's barbaric pearl and gold, Satan exalted sat by merit raised. So Eastern iconography, Eastern imagery, uh, the notion that his throne is like the tyrants of the East. So he's being characterized here as pretty unambiguously tyrannical. Do we and see that? Um, do we see that in like Byron, like um, connotations of devil with the East, that sort of thing? Because I know mm, any no. other romantics use that. Um, like there's the thick. Uh, Byron kind of does in the Jawa. Uh, he's just more like in his Turkish tales, I guess he shows some tyrannical Eastern people, but he's more interested in the culture, I think, and sort of the the exotic nature yeah. of the East. The thick definitely though. Yeah, the thick has, you know, a big throne like this. Milton was probably inspired by Lucifer's throne from uh, Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen. Uh, Milton was pretty obsessed with Spencer. Uh, and it's, as we said before, it's a travesty of the Messiah's throne, which we get in book six, lines 758 to 72. Also, what do you make of that last line? Satan exalted sat by merit raised. Spot the problem. Spot the problem. Do the word order, is it because he's exalted by merit? Well, he just sat down, didn't he? 
he didn't ask for permission and he wasn't actually put up there by merit. He just yes. took the highest seat. Exactly. Like he exactly. did it and then it says by merit raise. He sat down and then the poem gives you a lie in yeah. the second half of the sentence of the line. He's not exalted either. The son is exalted. He's not exalted. Ah. And it continues. Do you want to do you want to read this bit? Oh. To that bad eminence and from despair thus highly uplifted beyond hope, aspires beyond thus high, insatiate to pursue vain war with heaven and by success untaught his proud imaginations thus displayed. Okay, so from despair thus high uplifted beyond hope. Sorry, future Alice, your life sucks. Um, (laughs) I get that in from last time. (laughs) So from despair thus high uplifted beyond hope aspires beyond thus high insatiate. So it keeps elevating him, uplifted beyond, aspires beyond thus high. Do you see? Mm, Any ideas what that's doing? It's like layering on these sort of false aggrandizements of his position and his, his well, his agency, it yeah. seems like. He's also from despair, thus high uplifted beyond hope. That doesn't so make any sense. His despair has motivated him, his delusional, uh, motivates him beyond hope to this kind of manic ah. psychological state. Yeah, beyond hope. He's so he's so delusional gotcha. that he's going to continue to pursue vain war with heaven and it says he's insatiate so insatiable nothing will satisfy him and this is the effects of pride right once once you once you begin it just gets worse and worse yeah uh, by success untaught so he hasn't learned anything his proud imagination thus displayed uh, so yeah suddenly he's thrown being like I'm the best he's actually like he's gone he's lost the marbles there are no marbles, the marbles so it continues and this is Satan's first speech as king of pandemonium so to speak from this descent celestial virtues rising will appear more glorious and more dread than from no fall and trust themselves to fear no second fate. Me, though just and right, and the fixed laws of heaven did first create your leader. Next, free choice, with what besides in counsel or in fight hath been achieved of merit. Yet this loss thus far at least recovered hath much more established in a safe, unenvied throne, yielded with full consent. The happiest state in heaven, which follows dignity, might draw envy from each inferior. But who here will envy whom the highest place exposes foremost to stand against the thunderer's aim, your bulwark, and condemns to greatest share of endless pain. What he's saying? Is he trying to like secure his position on this throne by saying, I'm sacrificing myself because if God were to strike anyone, he'd strike me. You've all chosen me to be your leader. Yeah, you see his Machiavellian <laughs> tactics start to step in because we, only, we know Beelzebub is not much, not far behind him and could snatch the throne if he doesn't establish himself as ruler properly. So he says all this stuff like, heaven created me, your leader, and I created free choice. <laughs> yeah, that's a joke. <laughs> and, uh, and I achieved it out of merit. And I've, I'm now in this safe, unenvied throne. He's like, nobody else wants this because I took it and it's safe. Yes, sir. Um, that's because you're king of the stupids down in <laughs> Stupidville. He says yielded with full consent. No one consented. He just took it. Yeah, there was like, they opened the door. He ran into like the best spot in the bus, sat in the middle and was like, thanks for thanks voting so me much. in. I, yeah. will, I will try my best <laughs> to yeah, be your exactly. leader. Whereas Beelzebub is like two steps behind him trying to kick him off. And he says that heaven is going to be envious of their inferior position. <laughs> and he says, look at me, I'm the bulwark. So essentially I am I am the, I am your protection from God. So nobody wants my job. And look at me, I'm so good for having this job because I'm going to take the greatest share of the pain. Well, Beelzebub is just frothing at the end of the throne. <laughs> like, I want it. I want it. Someone give, give me. me. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. So Satan begins his reign in hell with Machiavellian tactics. We should clarify for listeners what that means. Do you know what it means? Tactics based on Machiavelli, who once was a person who lived. Wow. Yeah. Nicolai Machiavelli. He was an Italian dude. He was around the same time as the Medicis and the Renaissance. He wrote a really famous book called The Prince. And essential to his argument is the notion that in the modern, at that point, modern world, rulers had to make decisions based on pros and cons rather than morality. So it's constantly the trolley problem. If you, you know, if you burn the handle, you kill 10 people or one person or you kill old people or young people, you've constantly got to weigh those up. So he argues that rulers are outside of morality. They're amoral and they need to act that way for political purpose. Yeah, political manipulation was invented by this. So yeah, he's being a Machiavellian tyrant. And this is an argument made by Michael Bryson in his book, uh, Tyranny of Heaven. Uh, He says that Satan's rebellion against God is logical and makes sense once you take out the the religious aspect of it and the fact that it's against God. But he doesn't go much further than that. He doesn't establish himself as a new type of ruler. He just establishes himself as the same, if not a worse ruler, because he's not God in hell. Uh, And this is where his uh, heroic descent begins in earnest. That's exciting. And also because he's delusional, so it's all a kind of farce anyway. It's all farcical, yeah, but it's a fun farce. It's a fun farce. See, look at the fires. We'll roast marshmallows over the burning lake. We can go... like hanging his legs over the cliff above them watching. (laughs) You can like jump into these sulfur geysers and they'll spew you up about two kilometres into the air. Great fun until you hit the ground, but hey... (laughs) you got to make the best. We're going to make some fun out of a not fun experience. Nasty. Okay. Uh, so Satan's being a bit of a butthole. And he says, with this advantage then to union and firm faith and firm accord, more than can be in heaven, we now return to claim our just inheritance of old, surer to prosper than prosperity could have assured us. And by the best way, whether of open war or covert guile, we now debate. Who can advise Mace? Uh, we see his delusion, uh, the idea that they have a union, that they have firm faith and firm accord between them. Delusional, that that is more than what they had in heaven. Also delusional. <laughs> the idea that they can return to claim their just inheritance. Yep, delusional. you're getting the pattern. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Take a um, shot every time Satan says something deluded. And then he ends saying, okay, so how are we best going to do this? What's the best way? Is it going to be open war or covert guile? And he sort of sets up what the what it will eventually be. It's covert guile. He plants that idea here. And then he says, we now debate and gets everyone to talk. Okay. So uh, we transition from here uh, to the devil's speeches. So all of the major devils give us their idea of what they should do. So we transition from here to these speeches from the devils. Each of them uh, give us their idea of what they should do. What is also interesting is that each of the devils represent a sin. So um, in book one of the Fairy Queen, there's a pageant of sins. So they all sort of parade. And I think Milton is doing a similar thing here and using again epic conventions. We can perhaps try and figure out which one represents which, uh, except for a few. All right, Moloch goes first. Moloch is the fiercest war warrior. He gives a long speech from the lines around uh, 55 to 81. We're looking at in particular though. And he says, you know, why are we still sitting here? Heaven's fugitives and for that dwelling place except this except this dark opprobrious den of shame. The prison of his tyranny who reigns by our delay. No, let us rather choose armed with hell flames and fury all at once o'er heaven's high towers to force resistless way. Turning our torches into horrid arms against the torturer. When to meet the noise of his almighty engine he shall hear infernal thunder and for lightning see black fire and horror shot with equal rage among his angels and his throne itself mixed with Tartarian sulfur and strong, strange fire his own invented torments but perhaps the way seems difficult and steep to scale with upright wing against a higher foe. Let such bethink them if the sleepy drench of that forgetful lake benumbed not still that in our proper motion 
and we ascend up to our native seat. Descent and fall to us is adverse. Who but felt of late with the, when the fierce foe hung on our broken rear, insulting and pursued us through the deep. With what compulsion and laborious flight we sunk thus, thus low. The ascent is easy then, he argues. What's the arguing for? Well, I think he wants to go start another fight with God and like, <laughs> you know, bring hellfire up with them with all these fancy new fires and bring sulfur to the throne. But it doesn't seem like that's going to work because he doesn't understand physics. <laughs> Platonic physics. Platonic physics. What's that? Plato. Okay, so um, without getting in too deep, in platonic physics, angelic essence is the lighter stuff. It's lighter than air because it's, you know, right reason and it's close to God or whatever. And so it always floats to the top. Um, so they think whereas... that they're going to float to the top. Well, yeah, that's it. They're delusional <laughs> about the fact that they've fallen. And he's like, no, nah, we'll just go fight again. When actually they're the heaviest substance they can possibly be now. We talked a little bit earlier about the transition um, Satan has from, you know, he looks like he has angels, Ken. He hadn't lost all of his former brightness, but now they have. Yeah. <laughs> and so he's like, yeah, open war, let's do this. And the idea that when they fell, it was compulsion and laborious flight. So the idea that God just, God was chasing them and it was really awful. So going back up would have to be easy because God isn't chasing them that time, but they can't float back up. They can't get back to heaven. They've been locked out, which is cool, right? It is really cool. <laughs> what uh, sin do you think you represent? Am I allowed to be looking at our notes or do I have to guess without our them? notes? <laughs> <laughs> Your notes. Well, if I was going to make an opinion of my own, I might say like angry, but I know that's not a sin. So I'm going to say wrath. I'm going to well, rock that in. That is what wrath is though. It's just being an angry bitch. <laughs> okay, everybody. Moloch, angry bitch. Done. Next up. Done. Next. Okay. Belial follows. Belial is one of my favorite. And in his introduction, he says that dignity composed and high exploit is how he looks, um, but always false and hollow, though his tongue dropped manner and could make the worse appear the better reason to perplex and dash maturest counsels for his thoughts were low to vice industrious but to nobler deeds timorous and loathful yet he pleased the ear and and with persuasive accent thus began what do you make of that so he's known for be uh for being able to make like bad things seem good and like smooth yeah really (laughs) smooth is he like was he like this before the fall or is that something we don't know i don't know it's just how he's yeah um just who he is the, the idea that his tongue dropped manner is often used in modern fantasy novels. <laughs> is he like is he like Loki? Yeah, he's a Loki figure and um, he's a sophist, meaning he uses manipulative rhetoric. Ah, okay, so he mocks, so Belial mocks Moloch's speech. The important part of his speech is as follows. Do you want to read it, Ron? <laughs> sure. Whatever doing, what can we suffer more? What can we suffer worse? Is this then worse, thus sitting, thus consulting, thus in arms? What when we fled amain, pursue and struck with heaven's afflicting thunder and besought the deed to shelter us. This, this howl then seemed a refuge from those wounds. Or when we lay chained on the burning lake, that sure was worse. What if the breath that kindled those grim fires awake should blow them into sevenfold rage and plunge us in the flames? Or from above should intermitted vengeance arm again his red right hand to plague us? Ilial, with words clothed in reason's garb, counselled ignoble ease and peaceful sloth, not peace. Is the bit. That was pretty good. Yeah. So what's he arguing for? Uh, He's arguing, like, on the surface level to not do anything, just to sit there and, like, 
he's Stu. <laughs> it's interesting though because he almost admits God's justice when he says, oh, he's already done all this bad stuff to us, you know. He can do a lot worse, so we should hang out here and, and not get lampooned again, essentially. <laughs> so he, he sort of says, oh, we've built this lovely, lovely palace. You know, uh, things could be worse. It was worse before. We're on the burning lake. It could be worse if we try and fight again. And later on his speech, he actually mocks Moloch a little bit and says, yeah, open war is dumb. It's for dummies. <laughs> Why You're don't a dummy. We just hang out here and watch Netflix? Like that's, <laughs> which is a fair argument. So obviously he represents the sin of sloth, just sitting around not doing anything. You notice the amount of rhetorical questions. So rhetorically, he's also slothful because he's putting it all on the reader to reflect for themselves uh, rather than explain that he's, what his argument is. Yeah. Lazy talker. <laughs> yeah. It's well. good, right? It's cool. It's good. I love no, it's how clever. the rhetorical devices uh, reflect, yeah, their arguments. It's really good poetry by Milton. So that's him. Uh, yeah. Counseled ignoble ease and peaceful sloth, not peace. Not peace, but just hanging out. Yeah. <laughs> is there a difference? So, and it says his words clothed in reason's garb. So they look like they're reasonable, but they're not uh, because sloth is a sin. Mammon follows him and he gives um, one of the better speeches, but it's quite long. And he says, he basically argues that they should establish their own colony in hell rather than um, do anything else. And he said, it's better than forced alleluias. So uh, even if they, even if they're suffering, even though it's not as good as heaven, at least it's outside of what he views as the tyranny of heaven. And he says lines 254 to lines 257, live to ourselves, though in this vast recess free and to none accountable, preferring hard liberty before the easy yoke of servile pomp. What I think is fun is like Satan has just represented servile pomp because he was all yeah. pompous on his throne. <laughs> All of that fanfare, <laughs> yeah. big throne. He, because you know, to affect majesty, um, affect the same kind of majesty of God, you need a big fancy throne, which he does. You know, so kings. The whole reason that monarchs needed a throne room was to establish their dominance, <laughs> their pomp. Yeah, <laughs> assert their pomp. So he's um, saying this, like pointing at Satan, being like, "You believe me? Yes." Like, no, or like, does he just not see that he's got he a new tyranny? I think Beelzebub is the only one who realizes what's going on. Oh, um, God. <laughs> he fully believes it when he says, you know, we're free down here. We're not accountable to anyone. But the whole point is they are accountable to people, to God, mm. because God put them there and he only let them up because he let, he, they only got up because he let them. Yeah. And he says, they prefer hard liberty to easy yoke. And there's this line in the Bible, uh, his yoke is easy, his burden light. Or maybe the other way around. But the point is, when you submit to God, it's meant to be a good thing. It's meant to be an easy thing. It's meant to be freeing like the yoke it's this weird paradox the yoke mm. of God is actually freeing which they don't get because they're now fallen so hard liberty is in itself an oxymoron in, as, as much as easy yoke is an oxymoron but Milton is drawing our attention to those two oxymorons and provoking us to remember that God's yoke is fine <laughs> hard <laughs> liberty is the bad bit and you'd have liberty if you gave yourself up to the yoke of God yeah yeah that makes sense from a poetic perspective <laughs> <laughs> but Can from I Mm. Uh, but from our perspective, we go, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's revolute, unite, unionize. He is applauded because the others are the same. They fear anything that could be worse than hell. So he's like, yeah, cool. Beelzebub. So he plays the same game as Satan, and he's and it says Satan except none higher sat with grave aspect he rose, and in his rising seemed a pillar of state. Deep on his front, engraven deliberation sat, and public care and princely counsel in his face yet shone. So in the same way that before. 
Satan was using his face as an actor to manipulate the angels, Beelzebub is capable of the same thing. And he says that he's, he's second to Satan. None higher sat than him between him and Satan. And also princely council. So an idea that he's a monarchical figure. Yeah. So he just sees heaven as bondage. <laughs> Do you want to read his speech? Sure. <laughs> what if we find some greater enterprise? There is a place if ancient and prophetic fame in heaven or not, another world, the happy seed of some new race called man, about this time to be created like to us, though less in power and excellence, but favoured more of him who rules above, so was his will. And that's uh, lines uh, 344 to 351. So, what's he saying? Man with a capital M. We're still get him. <laughs> We're gonna get him. <laughs> Have you heard that there's been a new development in the kingdom of God? Yeah. Breaking. <laughs> I think it's Man interesting that dropped. <laughs> he starts with, what if we find some easier enterprise? So yeah, that all sounds difficult, guys. Um, <laughs> let's, let's find something easier that's only going to take one of us while I take over how while no one's looking. <laughs> ah, clever. <laughs> I think that's part of what's going on here. And then, yeah, let's go pick on God's new toys. So Beelzebub, yeah, represents envy. So he's going to go off and screw over God's new creations because he's envious of them. And you'll be surprised to hear that Satan bravely volunteers. Oh, I love a brave. Because someone's got to go devil. do that job. <laughs> He's the person for it. And it always, I always think of this from a far too logical perspective. I'm like, all right, so if you're going to go up to Eden and you're going to try and sneak in and then you're going to do this big job, why wouldn't you take a group of angels? So if one of you falls, the others can continue. Why just one? This doesn't doesn't make sense. No. But well, it's, yeah. Well, like I suppose like you want all the cake, so you have to like gather all like the ingredients. You got to lay your own eggs. You got to milk yourself. You got to churn the butter yourself. You got to milk the flour so you can eat all the cake by yourself. I don't care. Um, he doesn't want to share the glory. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I see it, but I might be wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. And this is, again, travesty of heaven, so it's the travesty of Christ volunteering to save humanity. Uh, Satan so-called bravely volunteers to save the angel. <laughs> so and we get this great, this great line. Alone the antagonist of heaven, nor less than hell's dread emperor with pomp supreme and godlike imitated state. Him round and globe of fiery seraphim enclosed with bright emblazonry and horrent arms. So he's like, I'll do it. So he's like, I'm alone. I'm the antagonist of heaven. I'm the big bad. And then the others are like, he is our big bad, but he's not alone. <laughs> also again, Surrounded. you'll see like before he was called heaven, um, the dread commander. And then he was compared to the tyrants of the East. And now he's hell's dread emperor. He's got pomp supreme. So all of the trappings of tyranny are there. And then it says, and God like imitated state. So he's imitating God, but he can't be God, which is even worse because the the definition of tyrant is someone who acts with authority they don't have. He goes, and then there are some angels left behind. And to be specific, a third of heaven's hosts are just left to wander hell without their leader and beings above. I don't know what he's doing. And I think this is worth looking at, at what they do. What's that thing? I've read this and I thought it was rather funny because <laughs> I pictured like, I don't know, when you're waiting for the bus and you've got an hour and a half and there's like 50 of you, you'll just do random stuff. Like someone will sit on a hill other people will be like making out somewhere like i'll just be sitting there on my phone that's what that's the impression i got they just don't know what to do with themselves so they're just like occupying the time with arbitrary things that's <laughs> I know, it's interesting like. what they choose to do so thence more at ease their minds and somewhat raised by false 
presumptuous hope the ranged powers disband, and wandering each his several way pursues an inclination or sad choice leads him perplexed where he may likeliest find truce to his restless thoughts. So what Milton is representing is fallen beings and the fallen devils and the effect that has on your psychology. Like without faith, you just kind of become lost and wandering, bumping into things. And it goes through some of them like have games, like Olympic games for fun. There's no point. They just that throwing was weird. stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it says others apart sat on a hill retired in thoughts more elevate and reasoned high of providence, foreknowledge, will and fate, fixed fate, free will, foreknowledge, absolute, and found no end in wandering mazes lost. Of good and evil much they argued then, of happiness and final misery, passion and apathy and glory and shame. Vain wisdom all and false philosophy, yet with pleasing sorcery could charm pain for a while or anguish and excite fallacious hope or arm the abdued breast with stubborn patience with triple steel. He's talking about the philosophers mm. and particularly the philosophers that came before Christ. So Plato, Aristotle, etc. Um, he's arguing that if you think about this stuff too much, foreknowledge, will, fate, fixed fate, free will, etc., you will be in wandering mazes lost because it's inscrutable. It's a mystery. You can't figure out God. It's a mystery. That's the argument here. <laughs> Peter quotes this back to me when I'm like, yeah, but why? But why? But you're wandering mazes lost. Wandering mazes lost, Alice. Or when I'm confused, I just come in and I'm like, I'm in a maze. <laughs> and then, but at this point, like Milton is God and he, he was alive. So you could have gotten the answers from him if he just left some expository notes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, maybe we could have a seance and try and summon his spirit. Yeah. Like, not- uh, yeah. And also the philosophers of old were trying to figure these ideas out, you know, good and evil. How do we find happiness, passion, apathy? We're all in wandering mazes lost. Yeah. No, no I'm, I'm just thinking about it a bit too hard and getting lost. <laughs> <laughs> so Why central, am I here? <laughs> central to this idea is the reality that they have lost the power of intuitive reasoning that distinguishes angels from men. And this is an idea by B. Rajan, who is a very prominent Milton scholar. There's some similarity to the Castle of Wisdom in Dante's Limbo, which, spoiler alert, does not contain wisdom. Ah, <laughs> <Aww. laughs> false advertising. Why else exactly. should I go there? <laughs> so this is what, what the other angels are doing. And then it's, meanwhile, back at the farm, using a technique <laughs> called Ontolasma. Cutting back to our hero. Again, a, a epic convention used in Spencer and in the Odyssey as well. Yeah, Ontolasma. God, what? what a word. I'm trying to figure out how to spell it. Yeah, it's no, I like it. Like, um, ampersands. <laughs> Learned that one today, this, this week. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Meanwhile, the adversary of God and man. And uh, you may remember me saying in the first episode, Satan means adversary. So meanwhile, the Satan of God and man. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the Sahara Desert sort of conundrum. Yeah. <laughs> Good job, Milton. <laughs> the desert desert. Satan, <laughs> Satan with thoughts inflamed and highest design puts on swift wings and towards the gates of hell explores his solitary flight. Sometimes he scours the right-hand coast, sometimes the left, now shaves with level wing the deep, then soars up to the fiery concave towering high. You may remember you know, this compares to at the start with the with the muse who, um, with no middle flight, you know, he's like, he's quick, whereas uh, Satan is struggling. <laughs> he doesn't know where he's going either, does he? He's Just... lost, yes, he's yeah. very lost. Because <laughs> he's in chaos. He's in a crack. And he, he gets up to the gates of hell, which are locked, lo and behold. Yep. <laughs> and he sees two figures. The one seemed woman to the waist and fair, but ended foul in many a scaly fold, voluminous and vast, a serpent armed with mortal sting. Now, if you're looking for misogyny in Milton, this is it. Yeah. Okay. Got, got <laughs> um, it. My eyes are peeled. From, from the head to the waist, she looks 
looks like a pretty lady with boobs. And then from the waist down, she's like a weird serpent figure with mortal sting. She is analogous to Spencer's Era, who is half serpent, half woman, who swallows her young and has a mortal sting in book one, canto one of the Fairy Queen. So he sees this figure and then he sees Sin, who is Satan's daughter somehow. And Death is her mother. It's a... Mm. But she's Death, death. also sprang mm. from the head of Satan, like Athena. Yeah. Complicated. Uh, yeah, it's weird. It's, yeah. <laughs> anyway, he they he convinces them to let him through. That's not that interesting. It just, that happens. Um, and then his light through chaos occurs. Do you want to read this bit? To whom these most adhere, he rules a moment. Chaos umpire sits, and by decision more embroils the fray by which he reigns. Next him higher arbiter chance governs all. Into this wild abyss, the womb of nature and perhaps her grave of neither sea nor shore nor air nor fire, but all these in their pregnant causes mixed confusedly, and which thus must ever fight unless the almighty maker them ordain his dark materials to create wealth. Into this wild abyss the weary fiend stood on the brink of hell and looked a while, pondering his voyage, for no narrow frith he had to cross. Sexy passage. It's Another sexy one. Passage. Thank you, yeah. Milton. Flips him a coin. <laughs> and if he had faith, he wouldn't need to ponder it because he'd have faith that he could cross it, but he doesn't. And this is also uh, the convention of the epic hero, the classical epic hero, because they often have a descent into hell and then they come back up. But here Satan is trying to get out of hell and then goes back to hell. So it's an inverted, inverted journey that he has. The way I understand it, this area is just soup that God left uh. left unfinished. He's like, put it down there with the rest of the With the, the rest of the <laughs> I tried to draw pictures of this. It's tricky. Yeah. Soup. soup. Chaos soup is the best way to think about it. His dark materials, he was going to use it to create more worlds or something, but yeah. And Satan is looking at it to the abyss and going, oof, big jump. <laughs> You have wings, mate. I like that he puts wings. them on as well. And it continues. So eagerly the fiend over bog or steep through sta- straight, rough, dense or rare with head, hands, wings or feet pursues his way and swims or sinks or wades or creeps or flies at length into a universal hubbub wild of stunning sounds and voices all confused. Good. That's good. And he's yeah. using, even then, it's like he's not, you got, you got to give me the poetic tools yeah, here. Because, yeah, so, using um, something to make it's it, is that, oh, okay. commas because it represents him clawing his way through these areas yeah. with head, hands, wings, or feet. Do, 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 do. Yeah, yeah, I see it. Swims, sinks, wades, creeps, flies. He's doing a lot of this. creeps, creeps. And even, even like the sound of the word swims has a swimming vibe, sinks, plummet, wades. Like they sound like mm. what he's doing, which is cool. Yeah. On the map here. I like yeah, it. Yeah, like, no, that's not the word. There's a word, there's a no, word, there's a word for, the for it. Yeah, yeah. the actual. Describes the (laughs) Alas (laughs) Please give us a podcaster's note. (laughs) Alice from the future here. Rowan from the present thank Yes, it's me. The word is phenomime, which is a linguistic term for a word or phrase that mimics a certain physical form or motion quotations. Uh, another term I found was visual onomatopoeia. Thank you. Oh, no worries, you're welcome. Okay, you can get back to editing. Thank you. So, yes, he, he begins his voyage. He comes to the court of night, which, as you can see, I didn't include many notes on because it's not that interesting. Aww. It's just pretty. It's just pretty poetry. Except um, that's what I thought. <laughs> so he gets to the court of night and uh, he says, hi, I'm lost. And um, night says, it's that way. He basically gives him street directions. He just points. <laughs> and then Satan continues. Yes. 
and eventually he reaches Eden and uh, that's where we start where, where we next see Satan but the next book opens with the narrator uh, again and this is this he's invoking God he says hail holy light offspring of heaven firstborn the eternal co-eternal being may I express the unblamed since God is light light and never but in unapproachable light dwelt from eternity dwelt then in the bright effluence and bright essence and create of Hurst uh, thou rather pure ethereal stream I think the juxtaposition yeah (laughs) maybe I think the juxtaposition is important because we go from like the darkness of chaos and Satan trying to find his way to light transcendent revelatory Mm. uh, light and the idea that God is light that's from the Bible it's like it's like the the reader gets to the light before Satan does and it kind of brings you up out of hell into Mm -hmm. exactly what Milton is doing he's like all right reader back into God's grace (laughs) he's Um, dunked the strawberry in the chocolate now he's taking it out it's saying you're done (laughs) chocolatey enough into the fridge with you quick happy you get comfortable in there We're getting acclimatized. Oh, no. This this is some really beautiful poetry that we don't really have time or space to talk about because we're focused on Satan. But if you are reading Paradise Lost, you should get a good edition and look at the notes, try to understand, yeah, the invocation here at the start of uh, book three where he compares uh, the Holy Spirit and the muse to light and talks about God being light and it being this transcendental force. Because, again, Milton is blind, so he, he can't access light anymore, which is always interesting to think about. The other thing to look at if you if you are looking at book three is what a douchebag God is. <laughs> we, might, um, we might look at briefly in the next episode before we get into book four, which starts off with Satan's bestest and greatest speeches ever. Some of the best speeches given in English poetry. So <laughs> we've, we've started off with Satan waking up in hell, building of pandemonium, him rousing all the angels. Now he's climbed up, up to Eden from hell, which is no mean feat. What have we learned along the way about Satan as a satanic hero? He's like all tangled up in his pride. That's his biggest problem. Mm-hmm. He's got Machiavellian characteristics. He does. He's, he's quite a little horror. He's deluded as heck. He's deluded as hell, one might say. He's very <laughs> deluded and it gets worse. And he's constantly like making himself seem more grand. Um, and at this point, we we haven't seen that start to crumble yet. He's just like put himself up on a throne, taken the job, volunteered as tribute, gone off into the void and... Um, I'm expecting his his armor to sort of start rusting at this yeah, point. Yeah, he looks heroic. You have to be that careful reader to recognize the delusion because I feel like if you're not looking for it, the speeches do just seem quite grand. Do you think you've read it a few times? I think so. No, yeah, that like I've learned a lot from this episode, and <laughs> it was the it's hard to see, <laughs> it was yeah. the undercurrent of delusion for it all because um yeah I hadn't seen it before. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's very Trumpian rhetoric, like I said. So um he affects likeness with God. He can't actually achieve equality. That's the problem. He thinks he's equal to God, but all he does is affect it. He has all of the trappings of an epic hero. He is represented as sublime, and this is something new that Milton is doing, and he's combining sort of epic conventions with satanic ideas to do that and to and representing hell as sublime in a different way to the way Dante was doing it. Um, he's got these Promethean qualities, and like like we were saying before, he's he's a union. <laughs> he's a union leader. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> an anti-imperialist rebel who somehow becomes imperialist. Imperialist. He sells out, essentially. So we've looked in detail at Satan's speeches and how he uses rhetorical devices to represent himself as impressive. We've looked at the way that the narrator uh, discusses him to show the paradox of both his impressiveness, but also his fallenness and the psychological complexity that comes from that, which allows us as readers to sympathize or recognize him as something more than just the devil in a sort of dichotomous black and white idea. God is good. Devil is bad. We see the gray area in between start to be unpacked by Milton. And this, as we said at the start, is how Milton justifies the ways of God to man. Because if he just shows a straight-laced devil come out, tempt Eve, tempt uh, Eve falls, he doesn't justify anything. He doesn't explain anything. But we have to see how Satan could have done that. We have to be able to put ourselves in Eve's shoes or in Satan's shoes and and have it justified to us. And that doesn't work unless the devil is uh, in in some way seductive of us as well, (laughs) to use a term from fish. Seductive of us. (laughs) Yeah. And we're not meant to, um, as I said before, we're not meant to be beaten around the head around this, about Mm. this. (laughs) We're meant to be provoked into recognizing these Uh, ideas slowly. Yeah. I think that's Milton's process of education, not hardcore didacticism, but careful education and reflection like the angels, but better. So epic similes are important for that, as we talked about. The Leviathan simile, the Galileo simile. There's a bunch of other similes, by the way, in these books. I just had to pick out a few to talk about that were more related to Satan. There's one, a really interesting one that looks at him as if he was the Pharaoh, which is worth going to look at everyone at home. Uh, And there's many scattered throughout the rest of the books, but those are two of the big ones. Uh, So I think we've, yeah, laid the grounds for everything to come, which is his degradation and psychological downfall, (laughs) which will be fun to look at. So next episode, we're going to look at book four. Uh, We'll look at book six, which is actually where he, uh, book five, a little bit book six, where he starts his rebellion. We see God exalting the sun. We see Satan drawing all of the devils away to him. Uh, And then we see all of his arguments for why they should follow him. (laughs) And then we'll look at book nine. So should they go read the book, Rowan? They should read the damn book. They should read the damn book. We conjure Milton. We're like, right, we have questions. Milton turns around and conjures Satan. He's like, right, we have questions. (laughs) Okay, who wants to be the moderator first? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't put the line numbers in this because I'm a moron. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a world. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 